Um, yes, you agreed to subject yourself to the Compared to White podcast. Michael Beinhorn, thank you for joining us today. We don't really ever get off to any kind of normal or clear start. I do, I read your blogs, and before we go into the vileness that was that title uh, <laughs> press conference that occurred yesterday, ah, ah. therefore dating this episode forever, um, I do want to touch on something that I found fascinating because I didn't realize that you spent time at Atlantic, which is very near and dear to this. This podcast is named after a recording from Atlantic called Compared, oh, right, right. Compared to What? So, yep. so you, but the way that you touched on it reminded me of a story from my childhood about another band that my father actually told a story that was totally mirrored your story about now your band was called Human Lab that's right and they weren't and, my band no no they weren't no. my band but the band that I yeah. was you know connected with this project right but I want, I want to know a little bit, because there's so much stuff we can touch on, but there's just something about that one blog entry that just rang so perfect. Um, just regarding how records have been made in the last 25 years, what the record business has turned into, who contacts you, and why, I know you, I want you to explain it. You had two options, both in my estimation, evil. But you chose Atlantic over, you know, I don't know, you. I can say Universal. universal. Yeah, it was, it was Universal. Yeah. And, what? <laughs> it's like, you know, you were charmed into Atlantic? Yeah. Um, sort of, I was sort of charmed, yeah, because well, there's, no, there's no other way to get around it. Um, you know, Craig Kalman is, he's very good at, he's a great closer. Yeah. He's one of these guys who knows how to turn on the charm. Yeah. And, you know, I also had a thing... Even back then, I was starting to notice that the recording industry was starting to kind of, it was starting to gravitate towards people who were kind of like green on the vine, so to speak, sure. and hadn't really um, had a chance to kind of grow or develop. You know, normally when, when you get a band, you know, and this is when back when I started, like, they were seasoned, you know, they would have been out playing, each guy in the band would have had like a couple of bands before, you know, they... Maybe someone would have had a record deal already, but you know, as time went on, this went away. People were starting to kind of like, you know, make more money, and th and things were getting more competitive. Mm. So these guys in these record companies would hear about a band, they'd go after it. Everyone else in the industry would hear about it at the same time, and everyone would converge in this one point, and mm. they'd start throwing insane amounts of money at people. Yeah. You know, so um, I had this thing where I was like. I felt very strongly that the business was losing sight of one of its most important assets, and that's artist development. Mm -hmm. You know, so I wanted to try and go to a place where I could instill that. And Universal, I was going to get like a staff producer down. It was going to be very, very lucrative. Mm -hmm. But Atlantic, they somehow like, you know, gave me the song and dance about how, you know, because I was, I told them, I'm really, I really want to work in artist development. Oh I really want to help. Yeah, I mean... They had one on the hook. They had, they had me on the hook, you know. I was kind of like, well, I'm going to take I'm gonna take far less money, but I feel I can make a difference here, and right. I couldn't have been more wrong. Wow. Did you do any records while you were there? Produce? Yeah. Not one. Wow! I didn't produce a single artist. Um, I was involved in a few signings, 
Okay. Uh, I was involved in helping actually develop an artist, which really in, involved nothing more than analyzing the band, he, the songs of the band that he was in, and determining that the artist was great, but the rest of the band stunk, <laughs> and that they would have done well to like jettison the band, which they did, right, and keep him, and he wound up being like the biggest rock artist I think they had a band called Shinedown. Okay, all right. Uh, and, uh, you know, but that was, you know, th it was like a free ride. I was kind of coasting through it. Wow. Yeah, and I, if you read the blog, you could see yeah, that. I was yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was a bumpy period in my life. Sure, no, no, and, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, we don't have to touch on, on the, the, the personal aspects of it, but the, the, the artistic aspects of it, and just, you know, that sort of window into that experience for me is hysterical because I feel like anyone I know that's similar to you has had a version of that experience. Once, once you've kind of achieved a certain levels of success, but you really actually love making records and you love the art of making records, sooner or later someone comes knocking and there's the nice check and you get a job and you have a job within a corporate entity yeah. and you learn what that actually means and the tap dancing that entails. And, and it is for some people. I mean, like, you know, if you look at a guy like Randy Jackson, you know what I mean? Like, not someone whose career I really followed, but as a bass player, you know, good bass player, like, he flourished once he got inside the corporate entity and it, it you know. He handled it well. I mean, he handled it extremely well. And he's got a good set, set of ears, too. I mean, he's No, got, absolutely. He's a great musician. Yeah, he's got a talent that I think most people who have occupied that position don't really have. Yeah. I, I think he's a good example because he's reached, you know, especially through his, you know, and I, we don't want to dwell on this. There's plenty of other things to talk about. But, mm. you know, to have a guy like that come in actually make a difference in some gigantic pop acts careers and then go on and be on a show like idol for like 11 out of 13 years is kind of insane you know like it's it's like because i would have to remind people that would make fun of you know him or that show i'm like yeah why don't you have him pick up a bass because i'm a bass player and i know randy jackson if he wants to can throw down and that's like i don't know a lot of other guys sitting in those buildings that can do anything they can barely open their mail no you know no i mean there was a point where you had people <clears throat> working in those companies who were extremely sensitized to music, who really understood it, and who uh, who got the whole, um, you know, who understood what it's like to be in a recording studio, understood yeah. aspects of the, you know, of a mix. Who could actually say, "There's a, you know, that mix is like got a dB too much compression on it," right, right, and you'd right, listen, right. and the guy would be, "You're right." Like, Oh yeah. my God! How the hell did you know that? Like you, you know, and I'm coming in like as a record producer, and yeah. some guy in a, in, a, in a suit is telling me there's just a little too much compression in that mix, and the you know like yeah. these guys like they actually listen, yeah. very focused, but those guys disappeared, yeah, yeah. and you don't see that anymore. In, right. uh, um Speaking of odd choices, do you remember when that woman Amanda Ghost was at yeah. Epic? Absolutely. Who like yeah. literally gutted the company yep. within eighteen months, destroyed it to the point where it no yeah. longer exists. Well, it's it's kind of like what Andre Harrell did to Motown. Mm -hmm. Do you remember oh, what? Yeah. So he comes in. I'll never forget this. You know, it's Motown. It's fucking Motown. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, if you do nothing, it's fine. You know what I mean? 
But to come in and put yourself on billboards and bus, uh, what did he put him? He put himself all over those advertisements on the side of bus of buses. You see this dude with the cigar, yeah. telling you that Motown's about to be reborn, and I'm like, um. Nothing's broken. What are you about to fix? Yeah, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's just like you know? streaming is about to be reborn. Yeah, exactly. Right? Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> streaming has a new face in its title. <laughs> and you know what's funny? So we were talking. Actually, full disclosure, Michael and I were talking on the phone yesterday, and one of the things that came up, and I found out the answer to this, and it's fucking amazing, is so title says, well, we're going to pay more money to the artists. I found out what that really means. They haven't done a full dis they haven't done a disclosure. No, no, no. The There's a simple disclosure. Oh. When you subscribe to the quote unquote high res account, that's twenty two dollars a month or whatever. Twenty six. Twenty six. The standard rate that is set at the nine ninety nine subscription rate is is it's just double. So you go from point oh 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 seven six four to point oh oh one four two three, you know, you just it just physically, it just literally doubles. They're not paying more per stream. They're paying more based on the fact that they got you in at the higher price point. I mean, come on, it's fucking amazing. And you're surprised? No, I'm not at all. But that's <laughs> the there. But that's the thing. That should have been the first thing I thought of. Was like, oh, sure, they'll pay more. If you subscribe to the premium thing, they'll just double the, the royalty rate. You know, it's not paying more. No one has been able to prove how you can monetize streaming. I know. It's, it hasn't been done yet. There are many companies that have been at it for some, for some time who are not making money or, you know, barely yeah. like Pandora, like barely breaking even. Right. Well, well, let's not forget that the, the owners still got to buy a $17 million house. You oh, know. no, they're you making, know, they're making all kinds of crazy bank offers. Yes. Yeah. You know, but that's not, you know, I think everyone's looking at this completely ass backwards. Yeah, I agree. You well, know, explain. There's, explain. Yeah. Well, there's so many convolutions in the, in the equation. You know, this is the product of artists. The product of artists is regulated by people in corporations. Yeah. The people in the corporations, their decisions are regulated by by conditions and terms that are basically, you know, that, that are more systematized. Yeah. Which in turn is being regulated by other industries that are trying to take advantage and use what you know what they refer to as the content yeah. that the, you know record companies produce. There are all sorts of business interests that kind of converge on this one point that we referred to as music. Yeah. And um, it's really funny to watch this whole thing go on and see how confusing and how confused everyone is because there's nothing happening but spin yeah. at this point. It's all just a tremendous exercise in spin. Yeah. You know, number one, Streaming is not generating revenue for you know for its company. The people, the only people who are making money off streaming right now are the people at the very top of the company and the heads of record companies because those are the guys who have made the deals with the streaming companies. Sure. They're all like I don't know five to ten percent equity interest yeah. holders yeah. in all these companies, yeah. and that's the that's part of how these streaming companies were able to get a hold of their licenses and right. use their master recordings. Right. You well, and, and I've said this before in other episodes because I've, I've, you know, I've had songwriters on, I've had, you know, 
I haven't had any label people on, but I have producers and artists. And one thing that, one thing that really cracks me up, I love your take on. I would love to hear your take on this. Is that all of those labels that own all of those masters? Which, by the way, to bring up title, only one of those artists on that on that dais mm -hmm. owns their masters, yeah. and that's Jack White. Everyone else on that dais. All of their music is owned by a corporation, yeah. which is incredible. But not yeah. to get sidetracked, what I was going to say is that all of those same corporations have publishing arms. And all of those publishing arms were effectively sold down the river when they bought equity in the streaming sides. Mm -hmm. So you have any number of these, you know, let's refer to the big three or whatever, the majors, they decide to get in bed with Spotify and Pandora, you know, maybe I think more Spotify, they buy a 6% equity, you know, position. And the songwriters of these songs, the, the reporting on this, and you're referring to the spin, the reporting is so ill-informed and so not touching on the right things. No one talks about the fact that Sony owns hundreds of thousands of copyrights that now make no money as a result of streaming and seem to not almost care because they're like, well, we made a deal on our masters. We're oh, going to yeah. make it. No, they you think know. that it's going to, I think that they believe somehow that they're just kind of trading one form of real estate for another. Well, the publishing real estate was always the one where they said, don't sell your publishing yeah. kid. That's where the money is. Yeah. So then they're, the money isn't in publishing right now, they don't, at least not on that level. They don't really see what they're doing. Yeah. You know, but part of the problem is that, and this is something that a lot of people aren't paying attention to, is the fact that the quality of the music that's being made, because it's being treated in such a systematic way, yeah. is decreasing drastically yeah. to the point where there are no records being made that people consider like, this is amazing, this is fantastic. You know, that you could say, I'm going to stick this in my pantheon of like the Beatles, Bach, Beethoven, you know, whatever type stuff. I, I agree with that. To, to a certain point, and, and, and actually in one of your blog pieces, you brought up something I thought was kind of brilliant. You brought up Adele, mm -hmm. and your contention was that 15 years ago this record comes out, and it's a blip. Now it comes out, and the bar is so low, she'll sell 20 million copies, because you know what? They are good songs, and she could sing her ass off, but I, I'm not putting words in your mouth. Now I'm saying this is how I, I feel about her. But... The reality is, is that, you know, okay, the bar is low, records are made by committees, no one's really are developing artists, you know, the, 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 everything from the songwriting to, through the sonic quality. Like, right now, name a record that you love. I can't. There you I go. Mean, Why, I'm not, I'm not you look at, basically, you look over there to your left, that's yeah. a record that I love. It's a 50 CD box set of <laughs> Deutsch Harmonia Monday music. You know that was all written in like you know from the medieval to the um, late Baroque period. Right. So you you're know? you're already so not the demographic labels are pointing at. There's well, you're I'm the an old you're man. The, yeah, That's exactly. The point. You know, I've mellowed my old age. Yeah. You know, but it, but you know, there's substance in that music. There's there's value to it. There's right. like there, there's universes of information. An emotion in each one of those things that tell a story of each of the artists right. who who composed this music and the artists who performed it as well because they invest in this as well. You know, you don't have music that's made like that now, where that mindset is applied when the music is being made. 
And that is the single thing that sells music, that makes music viable to people. It is a communicative medium, and it is nothing but. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. And if you forget that, you forget everything. So yeah. getting back to the record companies, when they, um, when, when they basically look at their commodity as nothing more than a physical a commodity that they have to sell, and they don't see what that commodity actually is, mm-hmm. and they don't examine it and go, wait a sec, we think it, it, it's this, but it's actually this. Yeah. You know, it can actually it can be both. It can be seen on many, you know, from many different angles. Uh, they are, I guess, unwit- yeah, unwittingly, they're ju- they're basically destroying it. They're yeah. they're pulling well, the guts right out of the right out of what is valuable about the music. I, I would offer up that they're no different than McDonald's or Walmart or Costco or you know, the, music happens to be. The product, you know, my, my father threw a line that was fucking floored me. We went to a meeting at Sony in the mid-90s. I may have told you this, but I don't think I've ever said it on the podcast. And I was really nervous. Man. I was like 22, and I was, you know, I was getting ready to go meet with a big A&R guy and a big artist, and I was going to do my fucking tap dance and try to get a gig. And we get out of the elevator on, you know, whatever Sony used to be, you know, like, it was like the 27th floor there, that fucking sky lobby. It was all silly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we get into the corridors of the label, and my father just holds his arm out. He stops me, you know, like you stop a kid, like in a car, you know, like, you know, but he goes, what are you here? And I'm like, I'm still amped up. I'm like, you know, what do you mean, man? We got to get to this meeting, man. We got to get this gig. And he's like, no, what are you here? And I said, nothing. He goes... We're one of the biggest record labels in the world, and there's not one fucking note of music being played. This is every indication of why, A, you shouldn't be nervous about anything because you're already overqualified, and two, nobody in this fucking room or building knows anything. And I was just like, oh my God, he's right. Now, you know, it was, it was over-exaggerated. He was trying to calm his kid down, but the reality was... He's making a, he's making a good point. Yeah. Now... I'll, I'll counter that with another story that I might have told yeah. you. Okay, please uh, do, because they haven't heard it. I was working on, on a record, and um, like a couple of records I've done, the uh, budget, the recording budget was going straight through the roof. <laughs> it was... <laughs> I'm familiar with that. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was out of control. You know, so uh, the recording budget's going out of control. The band's management are doing nothing to uh, stop what I consider to be a serious breach in the hull of the record. You know, so I'm in a panic, right? And I go to um, the record company, the Geffen Records, and I go to meet with the president, and I'm like, look, we got problems, you know? Like, yeah, this yeah, record's yeah. like, you know, I, it was turning out great, yeah. you know? It, was re- it, was, it exceeded my expectations. Everyone was thrilled about it, but I was scared, you know? And I'm like, we got to do something about this. It's crazy. It's it's out of control. No one's you know no one's helping here. And the band are like blowing money out the door like it's you know nothing. And I mean, obviously, I'm spending a lot of money on rentals and studio yeah. time and things like that. And the and the pre- the company pre- the president of the company, this guy Eddie Rosenblatt, he just looks at me, smiles, and he goes, "Just make the best record you can." That was wow. the end of the conversation. What year is this? Mid nineties. This is late nineties. This is ninety seven, and it oh, okay. really speaks to how people like that knew yeah. 
what they were dealing with. They yeah. knew what the commodity was. They knew right. what they were trying to sell. They knew also that there is an immense element of risk yeah. in this kind of thing. And if you're not willing, if you're not willing to take on the element of risk when you make music, yeah. then you're in the wrong business. And that's one of the reasons why I think people are floundering so badly because they are risk averse. They're trying to counter risk any way they can instead of trying to make the best music they can. And this is the problem. Yeah. This is a much bigger problem than illegal downloading, yeah. than you know, anything else that plagues the recording industry. And if you think about it logically, it's not hard to, to, to agree. Yeah. No. So it, bottom line. It's, it's a business that if you don't have the mentality that from f on the ground level, you're basically in a lifeboat in the Pacific. Like, that's the good conditions. <laughs> yeah. The risk that you're taking. You know, you know, how many people do you know? How many friends of yours in this business had parents that were like, what are you doing? Are you, all of them, you. Okay, I, I didn't. All right, I, I'm actually. No, you came yeah. from a family where, where that was with, where that, that's what your dad did. I mean, yeah. he, like, I mean, my parents were both loved music. You know, yeah. They've both been involved in it in one way or another. And my mom was like a, a pianist and sang opera and things like that. But they were like, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to do this. You know, and I was like, you obviously don't know me very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, have we met? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you should know by now that that's, there's, there's a snowball's chance in hell that that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is not, but it's, it's not something that you enter into lightly. Yeah. And it's something where the admission fee nowadays is 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 not steep the way it used to be. Yeah. Like this, yeah. You know, he's pointing at a laptop. Oh yes, and he's pointing at a dongle from Propeller Heads, the makers of Reason. Exactly. Not a sponsor of the podcast. This no. is all you need, basically, yeah. anyone to make a, to make a record now to make music. That is all you need. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people are flourishing, just kind of sitting around. Doing, you know, getting paid way more than people who go into recording studios to make records. Sure. You know, doing stuff like this, and this is their, this, these are their instruments, you know, yeah. and a pair of headphones, you know, and that's, it's wonderful that the technology exists. It's wonderful that people can do these kinds of things. Sure. The issue is that it, it's, it looks too easy, and that's, again, because the bar has been, has been considerably lowered, and it's so low that it looks to entry-level um, individuals as if all they have to do is spend a couple of months learning how to use this and that, that yeah. they will be able. And frankly, there's nothing in the world that right now that's telling them that they can't. Right. No, you know? you're 100% right. The only thing that's telling them they can't is that the vast majority of the people, you know, making these records with a laptop and a, you know, whatever, virtual software aren't making an actual living. There, there are a handful of people that are doing it. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. you know... But everyone looks at the exception. They don't look at the rule. Exactly. You know, people yeah. think, look at that and go, I could do that too. And it's yeah. like, no, you really can't do that. You can mm -hmm. try. You can say you're an artist. Mm -hmm. You can have the same tools as artist X who you follow. That doesn't mean anything. No. Well, and the same thing can be said for photography. The same thing can, can be said for writing. Yeah. Any sort of medium, any sort of artistic medium, you know, where technology is, you know, it, it erupted in, in such a rapid way. I mean, listen, I got into music, and I want to touch on something because I'm looking at a, a wall of modular synths. <laughs> uh, I want to go a little bit way further back uh, with regards to you. I got in because I toured as a bass player. 
I toured with pop stars, I saved my money, and I bought sets because I saw that everything was vanishing. You know, and I was a, absolutely a billion percent fortunate enough to have a father, you know, who was like a sage who looked at me and said, hey, listen, this is, this is history in five years. Mm -hmm. this is, there's a toilet that's flushing, and boy, is that water starting to go really fast. So I saved up for, and, and it's funny, because at the time, you get a rolling workstation like a JV 1080 or something like that, and it's exorbitant in price now, but compared to the Emulator 3 that was like four times its price, you know, that was my entry level. A Nord Lead, a JV 1080, an MPC 3000, you know, total investment, maybe five grand, which would represent like a very bad month of touring. So my, so, so I invested in that gear, it, it, you know, there's no appreciation of value, none of it's worth more. You know, it's kind of like 1980s baseball cards, but yeah. Work-wise, it work, was the best investment best, you could have made. Absolutely. But since, and technology, and, and, and how you got into all of this is kind of one thing I want to touch on because, you know, it's pretty esoteric to roll in on Atlantic, you know, you know, this is on the heels of tons of platinum records. <laughs> you worked on Rocket. You worked on, you know, you have a history that goes way before this. So I do want to touch on, like, you're, you got these parents, they're kind of scared for you. How the fuck did you get into this business? What was the first move? I, I bought a micro Moog uh, synthesizer. Good move. From money that I saved up from pushing like an ice cream carter on Flushing Meadow Park for, <laughs> for <That's> summer. Perfect. <laughs> that, hey man, that's yeah. how it starts. You know? Yeah. The small time makes good. <laughs> uh, you know, and I just I was obsessed with sound ever since I was little. You know, I mean, I I saw the cover of Switched On Bach by you know uh, Wendy Carlos. Yeah. And I saw one of those, and I was like. I want to have me one of them. Oh. You know, and that's He's pointing at a large, it's, I'm assuming it's a Moog modular. Yeah. Yeah, it's gigantic. All right. Yeah. Um, and the sounds on it were just amazing. Yeah. You know. Um, and still are. <laughs> yeah. Nothing, no instrument sounds like that. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about these instruments. It's, they just each have their own personality. But, you know, that's how I, I got started. And I ran into some people in Manhattan who were like, who were musicians. I wasn't very good, but I had a synthesizer, you know, so that was yeah, kind yeah. of a novelty type thing. So we started playing together. And one of them was a bassist named Bill Laswell. Ah, uh, an amateur. An amateur, yeah. a rank amateur. That's slouch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we formed a band called Material. Yeah. Fred, Fred Marr. Was oh, Fred, Fred yeah, Marr was Fred in Material? Was in, yeah. yeah. Yep. That's awesome. It's a good band. It was it. It was definitely uh, we did some interesting stuff. Wow, and you were the keyboard player, um, ostensibly, or did he, you? Whenever there was a need for someone who actually could play well, we'd uh, we'd call out. <laughs> <laughs> and who would that maybe someone be like? A... It just it varied. You know, I I took piano lessons when I was younger, and I just didn't have the the attention span for it. You know, synth sounds were more immediate. Yeah. But there's something very kind of mutable about programming a synth. You never get the same sound twice. No. I mean, even if you're trying to, even if you've got something really simple, it's not quite the same thing. Those, yeah. The wild thing about all these instruments is I get the sense, I've never owned one, but I get the sense that, you know, even specific 
atmospheric conditions that day and the temperature in a room and you know all, there are so many variables that you're really just like each time it's a new thing it's you know you, you know yeah yeah I know that's fine but it's the same, same thing can be said for tubes and guitar amps different guitar you know like it's all you know each, each one of those uh, plugs and switches gets really funky from time to time and that can have an effect yeah. you know also you're looking at patch cables and things like that you know a lot of people really don't consider the direction of a patch cable as having any effect on the, on the sound quality but it totally does and if you're using a cheaper cable, you know, uh, it affects yeah. it kind of the resistance is different. It's it's it all matters. Right. You know, you're you're you, you, there's a lot of variance in those instruments and it's fun. I mean, more so on that because it's a real antique yeah, than yeah. this guy here. He's pointing at a surge modular and and the and the, the main instrument that we've been speaking about is a Moog. A Moog modular synth that I would say is no less than, you know, even on rack wheels is about four feet tall by about three feet wide. It's huge. It's, um, yeah, it's yeah. cute. It's cute. <laughs> not, not many would say that. But okay, so you have this stuff. You're in material. I'm assuming that if you're performing live, you know... I just had a micro move. Actually, yeah, you all just I had used, the micro move? All I used was the micro move, and I was really into using shortwave. As okay. A, as, you know, just kind of like a, a device to generate noise and things That's like that. That's the best. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I... Would you run it through effects pedals and run it through, you know... Not... Just kind of just... Not really. I mean, I didn't really get into using effects pedals until later on. Yeah. The short wave was... Like, I, I'm i a big Carl Heinz Stockhausen, you know. I have yeah. been since I was pretty young, you know. And he used, found stuff like that. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, I love the tonal quality. Mm -hmm. Of just you know doing nothing more than scrolling right. through a shortwave radio, just you know late at night, kind of listening to the different bands, you know. And sometimes there's noise, sometimes there's weird carrier signals, yeah. sometimes there's a person speaking in a different language. Oh, it's the best. It's it, it take it kind of transports you, and like this is obviously before their video, so you don't oh, have yeah. like an image track to go along with every single bit of sound or music. So you basically, you know, you have these mental images of what's going on. Yeah. You know, because your brain kind of needs that. And yeah. I mean. And it, it's, you know, it just kind of like put me into a completely different world. So yeah, when we would perform, that was pretty much what I would use. You know, a micro moog and a soft shortwave. You know what's much. wild? You, you mentioned shortwave, and I, I always think of. Um, it's like it by Jay Miles's uh, Prophet Five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had everything. That's crazy. Well, um, shortwave. I always think of um, a story that Les McCann told me, which is actually we got it on the podcast. He learned about jazz because of shortwave radio. Because he, growing up in Kentucky, there wasn't a jazz station for him to listen to. It was all. Oh wow. You know, so. He, much like yourself, late at night, you know, may, appreciably earlier in, in, the, in the century, uh, you know, I guess maybe in the late 40s, early 50s, would, he just would roll the, the dial and yeah. see what he could find. Can you imagine? Like, you yep. find that King Cole and your life changes. You know what I mean? Well, you find, you know, whatever. Uh, so many people tell stories like that of how yeah. they were kind of huddled around a radio trying to find stuff. Yeah, that they were attracted to. I mean, that's how guys like you know in, in those in like British bands in the '60s and even the '70s grew up. Yeah, just kind of like 
trying to find like Radio Free Europe or whatever it was, or yeah. you know, whatever shortwave broadcast they could to hear like blues records that they couldn't find where yeah, they, they lived. They just wouldn't come. Well, and that brings me to I want to get back. I want to get back to material, but yeah. now everything's readily available, and the technology makes it so anyone can do anything. Then, not a lot was available, and the technology, you know, you couldn't get records, you could, you, you know, the, I, there's a romanticism and the romantic feeling I have about just stumbling up. I, one night, I think I stumbled on, like, Latvian radio. It blows your mind. You hear, like, the weirdest music. You will never have that experience again. No. Um, and I think we've gained quite a lot, but we've lost a lot, and it's kind of hard to say what effect um, that's going to have in the, the long run. Yeah. Um, I just, I remember what it was like when, you had, when I had to fight really hard to hear music that I yeah. wanted to hear. Yeah. You know, because like, in New York, you know, there was a lot of variety as far as like sure. FM radio and stuff. Yeah. But once you, if you didn't want to listen to WNW, which was like the most sort of, yeah. as far as FM went, that was the commercial stations, that yeah. was like the, you know, cuttingest of edges. Yeah. Then you went to college, and the college radio, you know, transmission in New York was pretty bad. It still is. And and I liked um, what was it the one in Fairleigh Dickinson? Oh, yeah. FDU. I, and, yeah, the, the F the FUV and and uh, well FUV and FMU. FMU. Yeah. F FMU F was yeah. actually the one. F FUV is Fordham, and yeah. FMU was like the hippest of the hipster. FMU was the yeah. one. and I. Remember They're both great stations, but FMU was like you know. They had this prog rock. Um, yeah. Broadcast now I. You know, when I was growing up, I was a massive like fan of you know not like the commercial prog rock so much. No. I, I liked it, but real obscure like Canterbury type stuff like Gong and Hatfield yeah. and North. You know, all these artists that you know were released on Virgin and things yeah. like that. You know, real space rock and you know, trippy yeah. stuff. And this one station would get it, but you know, I'd have to be like this with the radio, just kind of like tuning it in, and there'd be all this interference. And I figured out that I had to like connect a wire to the to the um, antenna terminals on the back of this receiver that yeah. my folks had. Yeah. And you know, this is like midnight, everyone's asleep. I'm sitting there like arranging this thing, like draping it over my head. Yeah, you're like anywhere push, it can go. Yeah. You know, until I, and I'd sit like this, like a rock. Yeah. Not moving because I didn't want to lose the signal. Because like the music mattered to me so much. I wanted, just wanted to hear it so badly and if I lost it it would be like my heart would sink it was really <laughs> no it was very visceral the yeah, whole thing that was and, totally visceral you know you don't basically you've got like a couple of pushes of a button to have the same thing the convenience is magnificent it's incredible yeah. that you can do that but having to work for something yeah, has there's, there's its, nothing like it yeah having to work for anything has its I'm not I'm not going to say charm it's great great value yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think of some sort of wise ass retort that something you don't want to work for, but I, it's it's pointless. I, I shouldn't even bother. But no. But I, so okay. So you got this micro moog. That's your first thing you buy with ice cream money. Mm -hmm. What gets you? In, do you go to Do you go to music school? Do you no. go to university? Not at all, right? Do you, what, do you go to City Queen City College? Where do you, where do you, you nowhere? You I, I just learned how to use the thing. You know, I just figured out how to, how to operate. I mean, it didn't have a lot of controls. It wasn't really hard to figure out. No. 
and uh, you know, a few years later, I started taking like a synth course at mm. a uh, a local a place in Manhattan you could go to called uh, Public Access Synthesizer Studio, or Pass, and they had a bunch of Buchla systems there, uh -huh. like uh -huh. 200 series Buchlas, yeah. and it was you know that that was terrific. I mean, I got you know a decent education in how to use those systems, and uh, you know it was it was a great time. You know, it it really was. You, you know, it's harder to find things like that now, but it was like yeah, they charge like ten bucks an hour for you to come in and like use their instruments a little bit more for like you know lessons. Yeah, and it was great. Oh, like, what an interesting yeah. business. The equivalent now would be like wholesale. <laughs> oh well, I was actually I was gonna say there's a, a school, I think it's called Dubspot, and it's like, you know, eight grand. You know, it's oh. it's so much, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, anyone I know that works there or you may, may hear this, I look at it and I go, wow, you know, to go in and learn, to learn how to use Tractor, you know, like, it, you know, Native Instruments, you know, DJ software or whatever, Ableton Live or Reason or whatever, eight grand. That's, that's insane. Yeah, you know, I mean, people it, are, trying to ca are trying to cash in every way that they can right now. Yeah. Well, it's that era. We're in that era. We're in that era, yeah. but also it's like hard times. You know, it's an era where kind of where things are converging. Yeah. You know, mediocrity is converging with democratization of you know of operability and access and complete access to anything that you want. And in the same way, entrepreneur yeah. entrepreneurship is converging with um, people who are desperate to be able to stay afloat. Exactly. You know, well, my partner. Do yeah, my partner Charlie uh, is the best line ever, which he says. You know, he has an album titled um, uh, "Not Getting Behind Is the New Getting Ahead." <laughs> and well, there you go. There, there you go. In a nutshell, you know, Charlie's full of those uh, uh, expressions. But he also actually, you know, Great to point. credit him, yeah, he's a brilliant guy. But to credit him, he also says, you know, this is very much like you know, turn of the 19th century and the 20th century sort of robber baron. It's like another gilded age. It's it is. It, it, it very much so. It is. And, you know, it's, it, you know, to, to have artists like that title thing, and I, 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 might, I keep coming back to it, they well, I know. made it's me feel... stuck in your crawl. It's stuck in my crawl because I'm looking at them and I'm like, there's no fucking difference between them and the Koch brothers. It's the same bullshit. So, but and then we're, I'm off of this because I want to. How the fuck did you get with Laswell no, to to Herbie? No, no. But uh, you know, it's it's an important topic. Yeah, no, we can get tangential. I, I don't really care, but you oh, know, yeah. but it is a gilded age, and it is it is uh, you know, it's sort of this whole like you know, it's a gilded age, but it's in a different it's a different way. You know, I think that this is a, yeah. They don't have railroads. They have media. Well, it's a um. I would say that it's a lot, it's a lot less of a fulfilled Gilded Age because yeah. part of what made yeah. that era, and I mean, I am not by any chance trying to suggest that we should go back to a time when people could operate monopolies and right. and you know have workers killed at will if they if they disobeyed them. I, I will say one thing. I think where I know you're going, I hate to interrupt, but a nation was built. Things were physically made. 
infrastructure was created. Infrastructure was created. I mean, infrastructure is being created right now too. Yeah. What, what I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm getting at though is that culture was an important part of the creation of these monopolies and how these people operated. Mm. Their lives were enriched by culture, and they invested heavily in that. I mean, right. all these guys, no matter how how awful they were, also. Right. They invested in heavily in the arts, right. in all at at all levels, right. and it's possible to to say that the arts probably wouldn't have been able to flourish in any way, shape, or form without their subsidy. Right. So, like the Carnegies and the Huntingtons and the, these, even, you know, the, even guys like Henry Frick, you yeah. know. Oh, Frick, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's a great example. Words. Yeah. Um, but like. You have something different where culture is essentially in the in the crosshairs yeah. of people of the of the new robber barons that it's kind of like it's either something to be consumed or it's something to be surmounted, mm. um, and this is a big problem. It's a tremendous problem. It's seen as like everything else. A consumable, right, and that's dangerous. It's right. very dangerous because it relegates culture to something other than what it than than the function that it ideally is going to serve in a society. So we got we got some serious issues ahead of us as far as this goes, mm -hmm. you know. And at the same time, the recording industry, which should be the ba the, the the final bastion, that should be the citadel mm -hmm. that artists can hide within, you know, that protects culture. Yeah. is essentially opening its gates and kind of like saying for money we'll do anything come on in you know rape and pillage with us you know if you do you know we get the, you know we get this and you know I mean they it's the old it's the old like you have no idea what you've just done yeah, yeah kind yeah. of thing yeah um, did you hear about this guy Mark Geiger who did this talk I don't do you know who he is he started, um, I think he, he was like an agent or something. I can't remember if it was William Morris or something like that. Um, and he started some online, like very early um, online thing for artists, like really ahead of the curve as far as that right. as, as far as that went. Like being able to market and sell artists online. Right. You know, back when th that kind of thing was unthinkable. In terms of a music service, or in, in terms, terms of a music, was service. it like Mog or one of those? No, kinds of no, things no. That it was predates like, I, that. I, I shit. I have to look this up. I can't remember what it, what it was called exactly. I think it might still be in existence. Right. He re he did a talk like about a year and a half ago. Um, I don't want to misrepresent this too much, but he but one of the things that he was talking about was how streaming is going to help turn this industry, the music industry, into a hundred billion dollar a year yeah. worldwide industry. Yeah. You, so you heard about that. Well, it makes sense to me. I mean, because streaming makes music now heard more than it's ever been heard, ever. It does. Constantly. We're it surrounded does. by music. But there's one big problem, and that's that the ship has already left the station. Yeah. You know, the ship has left the harbor. It's out at sea already. Yeah. You know? You've got two generations, more actually, of people who don't know anything about music other than to say that it's free. Yeah. 
the idea of being able to convince these people, and I think that the statistics of how many people, excuse me, are joining up to to buy the the paid tier on Spotify. Listen, we got kids. This. What are our kids doing? My kid is just like, what's your account? I'll use yours. Otherwise, I'm going on YouTube or I, I don't care. I'll yeah. use the freemium version. Oh you know? yeah, you know. And I, I don't yell at him, but it's just like he just doesn't. She's never purchased an album. It's outside of their purview. I just read something recently where someone was talking, actually an article about Tidal, yeah. where someone was saying, you know, for some reason, unbeknown to us, consumers don't seem to want to pay for music. And it's like, you fucking bonehead, are you joking? Yeah. Unbeknown to, and you're in marketing? Yeah. Are you stupid or something? Like, yeah. come on, man. Stuff. Like, really, like, wake up and, and, and take a look at what's going on around you. Yeah. You're dealing with people who don't know any better. And you aren't going to be able to educate them. Nope. You aren't going to be able to educate them because they've grown up believing this. You know, my feeling is you might have a snowball's chance in hell if people started making music that was better, where people actually felt some kind of kinship with it and they felt connected with it. But no one wants to make records like that. So you kind of have this, you know, dog chasing its tail type scenario. Yeah. Or the toilet bowl analogy. Well, the toilet bowl analogy I love. Yeah, I'm always going to come back to that. Well, it, it's well, a feedback it keeps, loop. It's a, down, it's a downward spiral. Yeah, yeah, it's a feedback loop. And it keeps happening and it's going to keep happening until someone says, where's the quality? Aren't we missing something? You know? Well, and here's the thing. The more I think that people sort of take what they get, it's kind of like the McDonald's, you know, and or... Walmart analogy I made earlier. If McDonald's is where you can eat, you're going to eat there. And you, you, you don't know the difference. You yeah. don't know that food is actually like, holy shit, if I went to France or Italy or Japan, you know, my mind would be blown, my palate would be, you know, broadened. You know, music is no different to me in th this nation across the board uh, devalues any kind of thought and or, you know, like, you know, the music industry and the top 40 to me is no different than the super value menu at Burger King. You know, they're the same. And if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, you just said two generations, you know, that turns into three and four generations. Oh, yeah, no, we're, you know, we're looking at that now. Yeah, you, mean, play, you play someone Count Basie in, in, in 20 years or right now. And they just, you know, that's because I value Count Basie as a guy. Basie yeah, rules. yeah, but I'm just saying, like, you play something like that, and they go like, "This is boring. I like Katy Perry," you know. And it's just like, all right, yeah, I, like, I don't dislike Katy Perry. Why can't they much? both exist? But how much? See, the yeah, oh, is, right, right, the right. Problem is, that's a great point. Yeah. The, the, this is this is the issue. Music is always about how much to me. It's oh. not about this is it. It's about how much. It's dimension. It's yeah. it's not just it's like the, here's the front. It's the yeah. front, back, and the sides. Right, right. You know, it's how far depth in you field. can go. Yeah. Yes, depth of field. Thank you. If you can access something where you experience that depth of field, it's a whole different thing. We're human beings. I don't give a shit what anyone says about this medium. Mm. You know, if anyone says, oh, you know, people will take whatever they're given. It's like they will, but they're going to adapt in different ways. Right. They're not going to adapt in predictable ways. Right. No, that, you know? that's in really the case wise. Of something, I like that. In the that's... case of something that... Yeah, but look what's happening. Because 
Someone can say, I like Katy Perry, but I don't want to pay for it. Why is that? Why don't they want to pay for it? It's not just because it's available for right. free. Right. You know, it's because there's no quality. Why is it that all of a sudden, out of the blue, like a couple million people have decided they want to buy vinyl? And most of them are like half, you know, half, yeah, half your age. age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for Christ's sake, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Why is it that people keep going back to the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and this one and that one? Music that's like 50 years old, 60 years old, and should be like putting the mothballs already, for Christ's sake. Right. You shouldn't have to listen to this shit over and over again. I'm sorry. No, seriously. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't go taking the Gap Band away from me. I will punch you. Yeah. Yeah. No, do, no I'm, I'm trying I know to make a point. I'm what you're to saying is point. The, the progression should be constant. The constant. level should always be. Because like, yeah. it, you, if you look at this, whole, like what's happening from a different perspective, no. and that perspective is that we are at right where we're at with two, over 2,000 years worth of Western music. That's not counting any other musical tradition mm. behind us. And what happened in those 2000 years? I mean, those CDs tell a really good story right. of how music was constantly evolving. How it went from like drone music with like a melodic line that happened over oh. it. And then like music where like there were unison melody lines, but no like root notes. Right. And all of a sudden there was, harmon th there was harmony. And then there was complex harmony. And then it branched out and branched out. And then there was something really unfortunate but important in all of Western music, there was the slave trade. And all of, I mean... Well, that's a whole... Yeah, you know, well, no, I'm not trying to bring this yeah. down to a... I'm just saying, music has... Ex I mean, you know, the 2,000 years involves the entirety of, huma yeah. of the human experience. Yeah, exactly. That rhythm and that... You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but, that, <laughs> but I'm that's just important. Saying, I mean, like, you the know, slave trade, you know, is one of the most important aspects it's of jazz, Western music. It's the blues. It's the blues. It's rock and roll. It's the roll and rock. The, yeah. the slave trade, yeah. without it, there would be no rock music. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's horrible to say, I suppose, but it's kind of like, you know, I mean, the, the you know, I mean, we owe everything that we have right now to African music. Yeah. You know. Well, you know, it's funny. An artist I just worked with, I just produced a guest on the show, Marcus Miller, tells an unbelievable story. Uh, uh, and we, well, we won't, I won't stress this, but basically he said, you know, he was at one of the processing centers uh, in Ghana mm -hmm. where slaves were prepared to leave. And he consciously made the decision to write, because he was, I think UNESCO uh, commissioned him to write a piece of music based on the experience of, you know, being there. And he was like, you know, I could write a melancholic, sad piece of music that reflects the tragedy that occurred, or I can look at the aftermath and the, you know, the experience in its entirety and what transformed and how people adapted, and I can write something celebratory. Mm -hmm. He chose to be positive on a very negative thing. It, it's kind of a powerful story. I didn't yeah. tell it very well uh, or relay it, but, but the idea the idea is, you know, listen, 2,000 years worth of music, I, 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 can, I can wind this up because I still want to get to Herbie, 2,000 years of music and we are now literally in a 99 cent store worth of bullshit but in terms of I, I think that's where it's come this is to the, this is the point that I wanted to make though oh, okay. the point that I wanted to make is that all of a sudden 
we're at this point where we are recycling music forms that have happened from the last 50 years or 60 years. Yes. And calling it new and, and constantly recycling. Nothing has changed. We have hit the first dead end in the entire history of Western music. Yeah. Right here, right now. Brian Eno called it too. Brian fucking Eno called it. Did he? I hate to admit it. Because he's what? also, he's, no, because he's also the same guy that said Lenny Bruce isn't funny. So I just told him he was fucking crazy when he said it. But Brian Eno called it. And, and he's brilliant. And there's a reason why everybody says he's brilliant. But Lenny Bruce is also fucking funny. Lenny Bruce uh, is incredible. <laughs> uh, but, but what I was going to say is that that 50-year sort of we're going around and around, you know how I know you're a billion percent right? I never go on writing sessions. I don't work on major label things. I went on a writing session with a guy. He's working on some pop record. And I picked up a bass, and I started playing, and he looked at me, and I love this guy. I'm not going to mention his name, but he goes, you can actually play? <laughs> I said, yeah. In another life, uh, I, you, know, you may even have called me a musician. Uh, but I said, check out this line. It kind of sounds like, you know, I'm kind of vibing on this Donny Hathaway thing. And of course, you know what came next. Mm -hmm. Who's Donny Hathaway? Yeah. I was done. I love the kid. Yeah, the kid. I sound like my dad. I love the guy, but if you're a record producer and you're doing anything that even remotely resembles something with a, a hump or a groove and you don't know who Donny Hathaway is, that, that's a little bit of a problem for me. I know you're a Stockhausen guy, so no, no, they may no. not be one for you, but oh, no, no, it's no, a no, major no. fucking problem for no, me. No, 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 no. R&B and all that kind of, all, that, the, all those type the musical forms are, are crucial. Yeah. You know, and they're also imperative to rock music, and there's something that's left out of rock music. When I work with artists, I, I work very, very hard to get them to a place where they actually understand what a groove is. And, and I'm glad you're bringing that up because you and and I'll mention need that in rock. Music. I'll well, I'll mention you know in the description of this episode records you've worked on. There are records of groups that you've worked on where I, I'll just be honest. They're they're not bands I listen to. There are some bands that I'm like, listen, all the records, and I have to touch on, uh, was it Super Unknown, Soundgarden? Mm -hmm. That fucking record, I, out of that whole period, I mean, I was, that record came out, and I was just like, yeah, whatever, I'm listening to Tribe Called Quest. And I heard that <laughs> record, and that fucking record is, it's to me the pinnacle of what, that moment was the, the black hole sun and the spoon thing or whatever. <laughs> I don't know all the names, yeah, it's okay. but Sonic. I oh my god, this thing has a hump, and that proves exactly what you were just saying. It's like, well, I wouldn't think these guys could. Go that thing is churning. There is a rock that has roll. <laughs> I fucking hated the '80s because. All of the role left rock. It was all that it was fucking. All quantized. Oh, it was it's all even like just horseshit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. everyone had to play like right on with the click. Yeah. You know, and no one really kind of thought about like the internal groove or anything like that. No. You know. Not even close. But the, it's it's really the organic 
perform. It's it's like the organic feel of people playing together. That's part of what makes music so seductive and nice to listen to. Yeah. You know, I think you can get away with stuff being tightly quantized when you're talking about like EDM or, or electronic music. And I, I think in some cases the people still play with like grooves and and, and things like that. Sometimes. Um, but like when you're talking about a rock band, you know, and, and people. Every person I know like grids their stuff, you know, and beat detectives it and all this kind of stuff. And to me, you you basically just lost everything that's intrinsically wonderful about what you're working on at that at that moment when you suck all that stuff out of it. I want to explain what gridding is. It it means that you've set a tempo, and that for the purposes of editing within software like Pro Tools or or anything that enables you to create uh, record audio. Um, I think people also grid stuff because um, they need to edit and they need to make the edits easy, and oh. they and they and they want to be able to say, "Hey, let's mute the bridge," which you is know, you if know, there even is a bridge in a yeah. song. There's very few songs with bridges. Which is fine if that's appropriate, right? You know, and I'm not necessarily comfortable about criticizing people's work habits and oh, things I like am. that. It's like, no, <laughs> if, if you want to do it, it's fine. I mean. Yeah. You know, it's not the way I'm going to work. Yeah. You know, and I, and that kind of makes the whole that my process of working very mysterious to people because they're kind of like, well, how do you do it? Yeah. Like, uh, you get the musician to work their ass off. Yeah. Because that's what people want to hear. Yeah. They don't want to hear. You know, you think you think that people want to hear something that sounds like a machine played. Right. You know, because to further expand on the concept of gritting, what it does. Is it relieves because you know when a person plays, they have a groove, they have a natural way because they're not a machine. Each hit they make is not necessarily going to come down in precise relationship with a click. There's going to be a little bit of play here and there, and it makes right. something kind of cool happen. And M then the you know musicians the, call it a pocket. A pocket, yeah. yeah. And then you know that's the drum track, and the bassist plays on top of that, and he's got his own pocket, and they play how I guess I refer to as interdependently. Yeah. They work as a unit. It's two people playing together. When you grit it, you, when you grit a piece of music, you take all that away. You relieve the drum track of its pocket. Everything is lined up to the near sixteenth note. With the bass, it's the same thing. Everything happens on the same downbeat. You know, no flaming, no in between type stuff. Right. No, no groove. Right. None of the yeah syncopation <laughs> and yeah. uh, and uh, human error. I told my mother-in-law this story, actually, that was very interesting, um, speaking of this, um, yesterday, yeah. coincidentally. Um, back when uh, the Fairlight, the CMI, was, oh, yeah, yeah. was like new technology, I met this guy, I was working on a project in Canada, this was like 1984 or something, and um, he, I think, was working with Fairlight. He had a fair light at any rate. Yeah. You know, he was like the only guy up there who had one, so he was like, Woo. Oh, yeah, it was you like know? a thirty thousand dollar thing, oh, it was wasn't crazy. it? It was ridiculously expensive. So what does this guy do? Remember the page R function, this the sequencer? No, I don't. Right, sure. it was a sequencer in the fair light. You know, it was kind of like the big deal about apart from the fact that you could play like real instruments. Yeah. He programmed um, uh, is it Teen Town or Birdland by Weather Report? Teen Town would be ridiculous. Like yeah, the more, the more, you know, 
you know, the, the, with the bass leap. That was the one, yeah. He yeah. programmed Teen Town into... Um, Sang it way too fast, but yeah. Into uh, Fairlight. Down to every, every last note. All oh, the improvs. Like ridiculous. Oh my god. Yeah. You know, yeah. What? This is, yeah, but with a quantizer, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, the whole thing kind of like done in time. Right, right, right. But in that feel. Like he, he you know. It was an abomination. Oh, I'm sure. It was disgusting. I'm it, sure was, it was terrible. It, it was basic. I, I would have preferred listening. Do you, do you ever see the robot, uh, the robot saxophone that plays Giant Steps? No. There's a German robot that, uh, I think it's German, and they programmed this robot to just play all of train, you know, so there's there's no dynamics. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, da 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 which is, you know, and that's not to say technology is a bad thing. No, no, no. You know, it's, but it, it, there's people using it, and that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Seinfeld, people are the worst, you know. You know, people, yeah. they're the worst. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Well, we're, we're trying to a kind of a conclusion here. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, I guess I don't really give a shit about the, the Herbie Hancock thing. There's so many things. You 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 were you did work on that record. How I gotta say this. The one thing so we become friends on Facebook, Michael and I, and I'm I'm such a weirdo that I th I thought it was a Michael Beinhorn impersonator. Cause I was like, well why would I actually be friends with this fucking, you know, gigantic <laughs> rock producer? Like it, he's not on Facebook, it's not him. So I sent him a note and you know, we go back in and figure out, oh, it's it's actually him, it's legit. Because who knows? You know, you don't know who you're meeting. It's, you know, Facebook is a bunch of weirdos, you know? Oh, yeah. But yes. my my thing is going from 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 Herbie to corn, I mean like it that's I will say this, you know, there's 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 a uh, a breadth to the to the work that I respect. Uh that's kind of there aren't a lot of guys that have made record, and this is the maybe it's like the Sammy Davis Jr. talk show portion of the uh, podcast where I kiss your ass. It's not going to last long, Bynord. I don't okay. kiss a lot of ass. Okay. But I'll, no, I'll nice run, serious fucking run of uh, you. you know, hopefully you know continuing. But you know, uh, I'll you know what is it? Uh, whole Chili Peppers, Corn, Fuel, uh, things I'm forgetting. Soundgarden. Hitler Youth, I'm sure he, <laughs> I don't know. But, her, okay, yeah. quickly, Herbie, what was that record like? Because it is a really important record to me as a kid. <laughs> what did, what, what, what? I don't know if you want to go down that route. Oh, was it not a pleasant experience? It wasn't that it wasn't a pleasant experience. It, it actually, it was very eye-opening for me, because I was a kid. I mean, I was like 22. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about music at all. I mean, like, well, I mean, I, I know what I liked. And How I much older was Bill? He was five years old he, and continues to be five years old. <laughs> yeah, he persists. Isn't it funny how that yeah, works? Like, yeah. yeah I, try, I keep trying to catch up and it never works. You never will. Yeah. But I'll always treat you like you're five years younger. I don't know, but I'm building yeah. a time machine in the other room. So Good. I'm going to get there, man. I'm going to get there. <laughs> you know, I want to get to that point. Good. But, um, like, 
this was Herbie's last record for Sony. I know. Columbia. I know. He was going to get the boot, but good. Oh, yeah. You know, he wasn't selling records. Yeah. All the records he'd made after um, after Maiden Voyage, I think. Because that came after no. Headhunters? No, no, no. Maiden Voyage is a Blue Note record. Maiden Voyage very, oh, right. very I'm sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm that's getting like, confused. I'm yeah. getting, hence the title. Yeah, Maiden Voyage, Inventions yeah. and Dimensions, you know, Watermelon yeah. and all that. Um, um, the one after the one after Headhunters. Um, right. Everything was a step. Right. And he was a liability to them, so he was going to get the boot. And he was just flailing, just looking for something. And we got to thank God that's done. That was yeah. driving me bananas. Um, oh, yeah, that's going to be like, at this point in the like, episode, Shh. yeah, it's like, oh, uh, thanks, guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what can you do? Yeah. Uh, this is a labor of love. Put our excise and tope. Yeah, uh, I got to get them to give it to me. I'm not paying those rates. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're working Herbie's, on... Herbie's like dying. You know, they're going to kick him off uh, off Columbia, which right. is not Sony at that point. Right, and, right, right, right. Uh, you know, so this guy who was his assistant is friendly with someone who was working with us at the time. Oh. They connect us. Actually, it was when Fred was still in the band. So it was like Bill and Fred... Okay. You know, who kind of got like, you're going to play on, on Herbie's next record. And I was kind of like, oh, cool. And I was sitting there, about me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so nothing happens. Fred got kicked out of the band. Ah, and, um, right, and goes and joins Scritty Politi. Goes and joins Scritty Politi. Yeah. Kind yeah. of step up there. And, um, you know, all of a sudden the Hancock thing's back on the table. Uh-huh. And we didn't even meet Herbie. You know, someone just gave us a stack of like hundreds. You know, we had like... Really? He had like the... Sony Columbia, excuse me, gave him a hundred grand to do the record, right? Um, of that, his manager, David Rubinson, took 20% off the top. So you get gotcha. he's left with 80. Yeah. And then um, Herbie had a studio in his house, so Rubinson rents him a, a Studer 80. Yeah. 20, a, ta- a tape machine, multi-track. Yeah, twenty-two thousand bucks. So there's Herbie with like fifty-eight grand to make his record. Wow. Yeah. Um, to to rent it or to buy it? Rent. What a waste of money. And oh well, and I mean, no, manager. Yeah, the album. Manager, no less. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, that's that's our recording budget. So we got like ten grand. Yeah. To make, um, you know, to make two songs. With Herbie, you know, initially it was going to be two songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the songs was uh, called "Auto Drive," and the other song was "Rocket." You know, Both we started great tunes. Yeah, and <laughs> it was funny because like I just gotten this. Um, I had it for a little while. I had uh, this Oberheim DMX sure. drum machine. Yeah, and you know, back in those days, it was, there were two drum machines, it was either the Lynn or the Oberheim DMX, and like all the hip-hop guys used the DMX, Yeah. you know, all the, all the, that's why DMX stuff. is called DMX, I'm sure, you know, the rapper, Probably. yeah, it's just like, hey, and the pop people used the Lynn, yeah, and, uh, and Prince, yeah, so I went, but I went for the DMX, because, you know, we kind of identified more with like the, the hip-hop, like the yeah, yeah, fashion yeah. of Boogie Down Bronx. Well, you're from New York. <laughs> I mean, look what you're surrounded by. And, uh, you know, so I had to had to make this drum beat, right? Yeah. You know, so I make the drum beat, and I wanted to put, I wanted to have drum fills in it, and I didn't know how to program... I didn't think about programming the fills inside of the bars. 
Right. So I programmed all the drum fills outside of the bar, so all those breaks are in there by accident. <laughs> really? So I just couldn't yeah. figure out how to do it. By the time we did Auto Driver, I was going, oh, oh, I have another sequence that I put in that's got the drum beat, yeah. drum fill inside. Instead of like stopping and going, you know, because when we did it, it was kind of like, wow, that's kind of odd, but it's sort of cool. Right. So you literally would just be like, you roll tape and you get like, 24 measures and then just be like hold on it's time for a no no no, no. I, I i program the sequence but my brain doesn't work yeah i think i might be autistic or something on the um, spectrum <laughs> no i i just things on linear like linear stuff doesn't make don't make a lot of sense so no. the idea of like programming a, a sequence that had a drum fill inside of the bar just didn't it didn't <laughs> didn't kind of hit me until later on just, okay yeah wow <laughs> but you know, we just built the whole thing from the ground up. Sure. And it was utterly conceptual. Yeah. There was nothing about it that was, um, you know, that, that was actually kind of thought out beyond what would this guy who was a formative figure in, in popular music, in jazz music, just mm. one of the greatest all-around musicians who ever lived, mm. after having created masterpieces like you know, headhunters, and oh, yeah. you know, basically these forays into electronic slash jazz yeah. music. What would he do if he was brought smack dab into relationship with hip hop music, which of course he had. No. You know, yeah. but you know, so we had to kind of like envision that for him, and go like, this is what it would sound like. You know, no. so we created this composition based on that. Wow. And. Um, you know, you know, so so it started out with the drums and the bass, you know, and, and we just like threw elements into it. Right. You know, Bill played his bass line. Yeah. Which is um, actually something from a Pharaoh Saunders record that... Um, really? Yeah. He just copped a, like an ostinato. But it actually happened on a different bar in the measure. Right. So I asked him to kind of like flip it around and start it in a different place because every time he played it, it sounded wrong to me. Oh, wow. You know, so the downbeat worked out, you know, it, it felt better, you know, you know, after he changed it. So right. That's what, that's what that became. And the rest of it was really, you know, Here's this idea. Let's get this guy Daniel Ponce to come in and play like traditional Afro-Cuban bata drums on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he comes in and he does his thing and like, you know, that kind of groove is insane. Yeah, it's that that brings the humanity. I mean, and the bass being real too. I mean, it brings the humanity and the just sick groove. It it fleshed it out, you know, because I don't know if you're familiar with Afro-Cuban drumming. Yeah, I am. Yeah. So you know about you know Kwafan Cole rhythm yeah, and things yeah, like yeah. that. You can't ridiculous. find the one anywhere. No. This guy comes in and he plays this groove and you know, there's this weird kind of like stutter in it. And I'm listening to it going and he he does it the same place each time and I'm kinda of like, How the hell does this work? No. And then he lays because he did three tracks. Right. So he builds on a He yeah. does the you know, the it's the low, puzzle. the mid and the high drum. Yeah. And each successive track, it made more sense. And by the time he put the last drum on, I was like, oh my God, this is extraordinary. Yeah. You know? And then DST comes in and does the turntable stuff. And 
obviously. What studios? What, what what studios were you at? We had our own studio in, so in Red Hook, Brooklyn. That's what I thought. Yeah. I always knew it was somewhere in Brooklyn, really industrial space. I mean, Red Hook. In night, what is this, 86, 84? 83. 83? Yeah. Red Hook's a special place. Oh. Back yeah. then? Yeah. Back then it was really special. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. I mean, one of the scariest features of Red Hook, apart from the fact that there was like a casket factory on one side of a street, and it's the Italian, like a, a mafia social club on the other. Yeah, they, they, they always had customers. Yeah, yeah, they're always feeding the casket company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's like, they're talking about a feedback loop. Yeah. You can, yeah, you can fill in all kinds of blanks to that one. Yeah, they were all these factories. <laughs> and they weren't and putting blanks in their guns. Sorry. Um, no, they were not. <laughs> um, you had these factories, and uh, you know they, they had, they all had like, you know. Uh, dogs. They all had like sentry dogs, oh, yeah. and a lot of them would get out. Oof. And there would be packs of wild dogs like roaming the neighborhood. I had a girlfriend whose dad was like stuck on top of a car for like two hours. Yeah. Until the cops came because there were like dogs everywhere. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. I'm surprised no. the dog didn't just get up on the, you know, just to work its way up. Well, he had his work cut out. Yeah. Him. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So we had this place in this like old. It was an old coffee factory, and during the Civil War, it had been a munitions plant. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Was wow. Really, really now, crazy. now, this record, you finished, it, you obviously, you guys did more tracks. Yeah. I and mean, they, you know, did more well, than Herbie just heard the, two the first two. And, and just like, flipped out, right? Oh, yeah. okay. I think this might, this yeah. this might work. Yeah. You know, I mean, he didn't, he didn't understand it, which is really funny. Yeah. He didn't get it. I remember... Um, but, I bet she caught on pretty quick, though, at a certain point. No? Not no. really. No, it was, it was interesting, because, like, this guy Dave Jordan, who's a very yeah. talented mix engineer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he got hired to be our engineer in Los Angeles. Okay. We worked with Herbie, because we had to go there to finish. Yeah. And um, Dave told me that at one point Herbie came up to him and said something like, Stuff's really cool, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. He was sort of looking for an affirmation because he couldn't, he had no barometer. Right. He was really like at, at sea with the whole thing. No. And for the whole well, time we were doing it, he was. To his scared. credit, that's actually kind of really great. I mean, to be like, to put that much faith in you. Now, here's, here's the loaded question. <laughs> and I, you might know what's coming, and you can feel free to say whatever you want. Oh, okay. Um, did you guys get. Your writer's share and your yeah. and your credit and your yes because it was massive and I and I could see how someone could all of a sudden say look at the genius I am and you know and and no we we get no it was it was split fairly good the problem good. was good. well the problem was is that we got stiffed oh yeah I mean we signed we actually signed a publishing deal and this is something that that Bill kind of like pushed me into doing. Uh -uh. We signed a publishing deal with this guy who stole all the publishing right uh, royalties. Wow. Yeah. Writer's share still, you know, is fifty percent of of. He got everything. Oh, he got your writers. Yeah, oh, I had to take the terrifying. guy to court, and yeah. like he, this guy's like a, he's like an international felon at this point. Oh he's kind my of god, like on the lam for yeah. good. Yeah, something you know, he's on a list in Interpol. He is. Yeah, literally. No, I'm, not, I'm not saying that jokingly. No, it's not actually. It's not a joke. When he comes, I think he's he he goes everywhere still. 
And I think he has to wear disguises when he goes into oh like, different God. countries. What a drag, man. That was a... Ma- I mean, I don't need to remind you. Thought, yeah. No, I mean... Massive record. No, that stuff's water under the bridge. And it's... Yeah. it's well, that's good. It's a... It's, I think it should be more of a cautionary tale for people. Yeah. You know, I mean, mind your, mind your composition. You know, now obviously the business being what it is, people I think are a little bit more yeah. um, cautious about how they handle stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, back then it was kind of, um, it was a lot more slipshod. And it, it, it did really, really well. Oh, it was, listen, be, and, and it, the timing couldn't have been better because of the, you know, the growth and the actual music playing of MTV coupled with its hip-hop influence and synth influence yeah. and it, this, this sort of convergence of so many perfect stylings. I mean, it built your whole thing. It did, yeah. absolutely. And it actually became uh, Columbia's biggest selling 12-inch ever. I believe it. It was it was Absolutely, enormous. no, it was gigantic. I, and, and, and it's one of those records, you know, at this point, that record comes out, I was 12. I bought it, and all I did was listen to it like hours and hours and I mean I knew every inch of that record <laughs> I could play all the bass lines I could I mean I just that was one of those albums where it was like you know yeah this is one you gotta this is you know you want to get into drum machines you want to get into synths this is a major pit stop it was know? so much fun to make that record too I mean every every square inch of, of the making of it was like it was exactly what you would want that process to be like it was just you know, it was one of those things where, like, you got nothing to lose in a way. No. Because you're with this legacy artist who's going to get dropped. And you know, you, and, and, yeah. like, and he's, you know, he's sort of, like, clinging on for dear life, and you look at him, and you're kind of like, you just don't even know, do you? Yeah. And, you know, but we had all the resources that we need to make this, that we needed to make this thing, and it was just so much fun. Yeah. You know, it was like, we can do whatever we want. Yeah, there's nothing to lose. There's it, no you know. nothing to lose. No one's looking at us like, you know, because either, either way, I mean, no one is even thinking about, oh, this is going to be an international smash hit. It was kind of, it was more like, this is just fun. Would this you, would you take the spirit of the making of that record and superimpose it on other albums, maybe five, ten years later, if you were having... Say you were working with a really problematic band or singer, because by the way, I know you have. <laughs> um, would you would you ever think back and go, I want this feeling again. This is what it should be like. I can't believe I'm getting screamed at by this person or whatever. Not not like a literal thing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it, it, was it? Did it set? a certain set of parameters for you for how things needed to go or am I over romanticizing it and it's not you just said hey fuck it I'm in this situation I act this way no you know? no to both okay um, I right. had for quite some time a very indelible idea of what an ideal of what a perfect creative scenario looks like and feels like mm. you know and to me if I'm not getting that something's really wrong so right. if I didn't if I didn't experience some degree of that in any project I worked on, um, well, I was lucky for a long time because that just didn't seem to happen. I just right. got really, really lucky. Um, yeah, but it's how you react to when you're not lucky, <laughs> and how you know what I mean. It's like you know, success is easy. You know, it's like you know, it, it's when shit ain't going right and you still find success or you make something that's gone off course, come back on course, you know. Well, that's, you know, that's yeah. also been 
the thing is, is that if you know what you're looking for, yeah, it, it, you know, it's it's really about two things. It's knowing what you're looking for and knowing what you don't want. Right. If you can tap into both those things, you're fine, and be aware all the time of what's happening. You're in good shape, you know. Um, and when things weren't going right on a project, you know, I, I I would always just be like, all right, what do I need to do to get things back on course? Right. You know, and a lot of times that re really involved very stringent um, measures to be taken. Sure. But you know, the way I look at it is like I'm not in this business to like be friendly with people. I'm doing this because I have a job. Right. You know, and I have to take it seriously. Now, what these people are doing, who's who, are, who I'm producing, they've entrusted me with their with their work. Right. I can walk the fuck away from this thing if I want. When I'm done, I'm just the record producer. You know, yeah. but these guys got to live with this, with the decisions I make and what I convince them to do. So, if I'm doing anything, it better be the right idea for the right reason. Right. And I've always tried to take that approach on but recordings. But what's the not you're not here to be friends thing? I mean, like you don't have continuing relationships with these artists on um, a personal not, level, or you not just with some of them. Yeah, you know. But it's it's not like by saying that that I'm trying to put myself in a contentious no, position I mean, with someone. Yeah. But it's more like, look, I know a lot of people who are really nice and easygoing yeah. and good and fun to work with and things like that and. 95% of the time that's also someone who's blowing smoke up the artist's ass the entire time right. they're working with them and and meanwhile there's like a constant thought going off in the back of their head this isn't right this isn't right right you know but they would rather not make waves right me I don't have that problem yeah. and the reason I don't have it is because I take an artist's work really seriously if I'm going to work with someone gotcha. like I said their ass is on the line if right. I fuck up they gotta wear it yeah, you go on to your next gig. I don't have to care, yeah. you know. But I take the job seriously. Yeah, I take I take my the the work seriously. A buddy of mine assisted you, I believe, on Social Distortion record. His name is James Saez. Oh yeah. 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 And he said that, you know, I was talking to him last week. I said, hey, you know, I'm gonna sit down with Michael Beinhorn. I know you worked with him on something. What was it? He goes, Social Distortion. I go, what was it like? And he said, it's a lovely guy. He says, he's really fucking serious. And he, and he tries a lot of things, but I never had a millisecond of grief with him. And I thought that was like, it's kind of sounding, it's sounding like what you're saying right now. You're, you're serious, but you know, there's a task at hand, but like, you know, gentlemen, this is not about having a four hour lunch. Well, Let's get a guitar sound. And it yeah. might take three days. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that, that record was really problematic. Yeah. It was yeah, laden with issues. He said he said as much, and and you know he definitely said there was you know, it was a process and it was lengthy and it was you know a lot of things. But you know I but would, it worked. I would I would like the artist to have something that they can live with, yeah. that will represent them well, and that will be able to you know that they'll be proud of like ten twenty years down the road. Right. I haven't worked on any records where people have come back to me that I've worked with and said. You know, you really fucked that up. <laughs> yeah. And you have you have a bunch of repeat customers too. If you if you look at it, no, really, really. I thought you had. No. Well, I think the I think one of the issues is that like for on a lot of the records I've worked on, the process was too rigorous for people. Yeah, maybe I didn't do my homework well enough. Yeah. No, it's 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 tough. You know, and I get it. Um, what was funny was after that whole record. You know, because of all the Michigas with the drummer business. Was that celebrity skin? Yeah. yeah. That, 
you know, some of the members of the band kind of like doubled back on, you know, how happy they were with the record because it was their best-selling record. Yeah. And, you know, they they were kind of like, well, you know, we should have done it more like this, and it's like, yeah, but you didn't. Yeah. And you I didn't, mean, and, and you worked. you heard the drum tracks, and you knew what had to be done, so. Yeah. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> all right, I think I think we got enough of you, Byron. Right. Right. I, I got all all the stuff I need. All right, We're not touching right. on the drummer thing. I don't give a shit. <laughs> uh, let, let let drummers uh, argue about that. Thanks so yeah. much, man. Michael Byron, awesome, sir. Thanks for doing it. All no right, no problem.